even if it's not being praised here in Jerusalem. In verse 12, the Lord rebukes the priests for acting like God's standards of worship are a bother and a burden. And then finally, the Lord pronounces a curse on anyone and everyone who offers a substandard sacrifice to Him. So what does any of this have to do with our lives? We don't have a temple. We don't slaughter bulls and goats. We don't have priests. I'm not a priest. That's not what pastors are. So what does this have to do with us? Well, I think if you want to understand what this text has to do with your life today, you, you kind of have to understand the sacrificial system. You have to understand the trajectory of the way this thing works throughout the whole story of the Bible. At the heart of the sacrificial system is a principle. The principle is this. Sin brings death. In order to pay the price that sin Excuse me, in order to pay the price for sin that justice demands, someone must die. You see this at the very beginning of the Bible. Adam and Eve rebel against God, and God says, I'll cover your nakedness and shame with animal skin. But in order to cover their nakedness and shame, blood had to be shed, an animal had to die. Life had to be given for life. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament, later instituted by God through Moses to his people, operated according to the same principle. Sin brings death. And in order to pay the price for your sins, blood must be shed. And so every year, we now know it as Yom Kippur, there was the Day of Atonement. But throughout the year, there were also sacrifices. Pigeons and bulls and goats and other things. When people sinned, they would bring these sacrifices to the temple and atone for their sins. The question that you may be having, especially if you haven't spent much time reading the Bible, is, well, how does a bull dying do away with sin? How does a pigeon or a goat or a lamb dying deal with my sin problem? Why does God find that to be an acceptable way to deal with sin? Well, that's actually a good question. And it shows that your intuition is actually uh, maybe tighter than you thought it was. You see, the authors of the Bible are clear. These sacrifices, they can't pay the price for your sins. The author of Hebrews says it like this in chapter 10. He says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. Well, then why did God have them do it? Well, you see, God was trying to point them forward to something, to someone to an ultimate sacrifice. And that was His Son, Jesus. The reason why these animals, as we read at length in Leviticus, have to be pure, like not not even a scab, not messed up in any way, is because they were pointing forward to Jesus, who was perfectly pure, without blemish in His entirety. Jesus came as the unblemished Lamb, And He was offered up as a sacrifice to God. And as man, He paid the price for our human sins. This is how the author of Hebrews says it. But when Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. So brothers and sisters, after Jesus came, 
There was no more need for a temple. There's no more need for priests. There's no more need for killing bulls and goats and lambs because the lamb came and he died and our sins are dealt with. But strangely, the New Testament continues to talk about sacrifices. In one breath, it says that Jesus has offered up the final sacrifice. But in the next breath, it talks about a continuing sacrifice. The authors of the New Testament say that we, our lives, are the continuing sacrifices that are offered up to God. Paul, writing to the Romans, tells them that their lives are the sacrifices. Listen to Romans 12.1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present, as if you were to present it on an altar, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the Bible says that we still offer up sacrifices. But because of our Savior, because of Jesus and His sacrifices, our sacrifice is spiritual, not physical. Because of Jesus, we have to offer up our lives daily. And this is how we worship. Rather than taking the lives to pay for sin, we give our lives in light of grace. So, if our lives are the sacrifices that are now being offered up to God as a pleasing aroma, what kind of sacrifices are we offering up? Are we offering up worthy sacrifices to God? Or, like the priests and the people here, are we offering up worthless sacrifices to them? In verse 8, when God talks about the kind of sacrifices being offered up to the temple, He says that we have blind animals, diseased animals, etc. These animals were all but worthless. A blind, diseased goat couldn't be bred. It couldn't be sold. It couldn't be used for food. It was the equivalent of trash. Except for on top of that, you also had to feed the goat and care for the goat. So basically, the priests were allowing the people to offer up sacrifices that didn't actually cost them anything. Sacrifices that were not, in fact, sacrificial. They were saying, here, God, you take our trash. In Sunday school, we've been talking about uh, time, talent, and treasure, and how we use these things as our continuing worship of God. We've said that God gives us everything that He gives us to be used for the glory of His name. So if you were to just take those three things, we can include more. If you were to take those three things and evaluate them and ask yourself how you're using them, do you think you would say that you're using your time, talent, and treasure in a way that is worthy to God or in a way that is worthless? When it comes to time, are you offering up God your prized time? The time that actually costs you something? The, the time that you would feel bothered about losing if you did? Or are you just offering up whatever time you may have left over at the end of the day or the week or the month? An easy way to answer this question is just to examine how you approach things like reading His Word and praying, gathering with His people, worshiping God in the church. 
Here's an easy question that will likely not land very easily on you or me. It's pretty convicting. When you wake up in the morning, do you pray or do you check social media? When you wake up in the morning, do you read your timeline or do you read your Bible? When it comes to gathering with God's people, something that God has clearly commanded us to do, if we love Him, do we prioritize that time in our lives? Or do we come only when we've had a good week or a good night's sleep or when we don't have too much else going on in our lives or when we're feeling particularly spiritual? When it comes to our treasure, are we just giving God the leftovers of our lives? Are we only giving to the gospel labors of the church whenever we have like a little bit left over after we've spent the money on the things that we really care about? Are we managing the cars we drive, the homes we live in, the things we buy, our savings in such a way to maximize the way we use the treasure He's given us for the glory of His name and the good of His people? Or are we spending it more on ourselves? and the things that really matter. Think about your talents. What are the things that God has gifted you with that you are not supposed to use for the glory of your own name, but for the glory of His name? That you're supposed to take and turn around and offer back up to Him as a living sacrifice of worship. Are you using those talents maximally for the glory of His name? I'm really encouraged to think about in the life of our small, small church so many different people who are offering up their talents. I think about Jackie Campmeyer, who's using her organizational and strong skills and strong work ethic to help with life in the church. I think about Spencer and his mechanical mind, and he's in here as a deacon working on something. It seems like every single Wednesday, when I come here to get started and pray and read a little bit more before a Wednesday night Bible study, he's here working on something. I think about Grant and his musical abilities. Megan Mayfield, how she used her artistic skills to refurbish this pulpit so that we had a nice pulpit to honor God's word as something that needs to stand up in the midst of the congregation. Eric, laboring, countless Saturdays, cutting the grass here in this church parking lot, which some of us see, which we all see every single Sunday when we come in, but almost none of us realize that somebody had to cut and keep nice. So on a positive note, I think as a church we're doing pretty good on the talent side of things. How are we doing with our treasure and time? The truth of the matter is, is that if we're willing to be honest, we're all guilty of giving God less than our best in every area of our lives. We tend to give our bosses our best, especially if we're like performance oriented, you know, if we crave the approval of men, we don't ever want to disappoint anybody. We'll give our bosses everything we got. We give our hobbies and interests all of our time, all of our talent, all of our treasure. Even good, like really good things like our families, we're willing to devote more time, talent, and treasure to those things sometimes than we are to God. But when it comes to God, we too easily give Him the leftovers. You know, I think about when we lived in Peru. We used to have to buy our chicken fresh every day from the chicken lady. She had a big old table with a whole bunch of chickens sitting there on the table that she would carve up and you would go up and buy and she would weigh it. As she was carving her chicken, she would always have scraps. You know, the, the fat that nobody wanted, the skin, which was less often in Peru. People actually ate that stuff. They made soups out of it. 
But the leftovers, the carcasses, the neck bones, the rib cages, all that stuff, she would take it and she would throw it in a big blue bucket next to her little chicken stand. And at the end of the day, she would take it and sell it wholesale to people to feed their dogs. She sold it dirt cheap. You know, you could buy a big bucket of it for five soles, which is like the equivalent of two American dollars. She sold it for so cheap because it was worthless. As I was thinking about this text this week in our lives and and, in my life, I was thinking about that bucket. I so often keep the good the breast meat, the leg, the thigh for myself, and I, I just I offer up the refuse to God. But the question is why? Why do we as God's children do this? Why, why do the priests, the people who know the law, why do the Israelites, the people who have been the recipients of God's love and promises, why do we offer up God this worthless form of worship, especially in light of the way that He's loved us. Well, I think the text actually gives us two reasons. Reason number one, we don't honor God. And reason number two, we don't fear God. We don't honor God. In the Bible, the word honor means to esteem to value, to show respect. It's actually used synonymously with the word glorify and sometimes even love. To honor is to, not only in our hearts, but also with our deeds, show the supreme worth and value of something. Here in Malachi, God says that He's like a father to Israel. And then He basically quotes the fifth commandment to them. In verse 6, he said, A son honors his father and a servant his mother. If then I am a father, if then I am a father, where is my honor? He's saying, You know, I've commanded you, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. I'm your father. Why aren't you honoring me? The priests had gotten to a place where they didn't see God as being worthy of honor. And then the second reason we don't fear God, the second illustration that God uses is that of a servant and his master. The servant should fear his master, God says. In the same way, we should fear the Lord. Now, it's here where you may hear a pastor stop and say, well, I don't mean fear like afraid. I don't mean fear like fear, fear. What I mean is like reverential awe. Well, to that, I think I'll just respond with a quote from the Lord Jesus himself. Do not be afraid. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. As the author of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I think there's more here, friends, than just reverential awe. Just like, oh, you're so amazing, I fear. No, there's a sense of, yes, God is loving and He's kind, but He's also a God of wrath. And He is worthy of our fear. It seems like the priests, and therefore the people of Israel as well, of Malachi's day, had lost a vision of God that would lead them to fear and honor God as their God. They had begun to see the Lord as less than He really is, less glorious than He really is, less worthy than He really is, less magnificent, less holy, less wrathful. Apparently, the priests had come to view God as less significant than a governor. Look at verse 8. 
When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show favor? Says the Lord of hosts. It's interesting that God doesn't use a more prominent political figure. He doesn't use a general, which in the ancient world was oftentimes right up there next to the king. He doesn't even use the example of a king. He doesn't say, you wouldn't offer this up to the king, would you? He picks a governor to serve as an illustration, a local leader, a provincial ruler, a guy who's kind of on the bottom half of the political totem pole. God says, you don't even honor me that much. So how do you view God? How do you see God? Do you think that you see him as he truly is? One of the things that we learn in this text is that our vision of God, whether or not we really do honor God and fear God, it's not that subjective. It's not as open to interpretation as we might like to believe. There's some objectivity to this. You can see in the way that people offer up sacrifices to God, whether or not they really honor the Lord and fear His name. If you're spending your life offering up worthless sacrifices to God, giving Him the trash of your life, the leftovers, the refuse of your person, it is objectively clear that you don't honor Him and you don't fear Him. We may try to play the fool like the priests. What? What? No, of course I honor God. What are you talking about? What do you mean I profane the name of the Lord? I don't profane the name of the Lord. How am I profaning the name of the Lord? We can try to play that game, but friends, the truth is, is that God knows. And we know. If we're being really honest with ourselves, we know. It's hard to be honest with ourselves, though. It's much easier to deceive ourselves. But how is it possible? How is it possible that we the people of God, the recipients of God's promises, His love, His revelation, can come to have such a low view of our God. How is that possible? Well, I think there are probably 50 different reasons. So I have a 50-point sermon for you this morning. No? Okay. No, I'm going to focus in on one point, one point that I think is very specific to us, right here in this room. Christians in America... In 2018, why do we as Christians in America in 2018 have such a low view of God? I think that a bulk of this blame has to fall on the shoulders of the American church. Now, it's dangerous to say, I blame the church, because if you're really blaming everyone, you're kind of blaming no one, right? And nobody really has responsibility. But I think. I think it's right to say the Christians, the churches, the pastors, the ones who preach in America, we treat God lightly. As if He's not a God whose name is deserving of honor or fear. In our churches, we honor God little. You can see it in the prayers that churches pray. Prayers that have more to do with us and less to do with God. We see it in the songs we sing, which are artistically excellent. 
amazing if you like Christian music, I guess. But songs that have more to do with us and almost nothing to do with God. You see it in the sermons that are preached. Sermons that are all about us and almost nothing at all about God. If you walk into any given church within a hundred miles this morning, the odds of you hearing a weighty sermon about the God of the universe are almost zero. I know I've been to these churches. I've been members of these churches. You have probably been to these churches. A sermon might begin with a joke or an anecdote. Then there'll be maybe a scripture reading, maybe. Then the Bible will close. Then the rest of the sermon will be pontificating, pithy wisdom from the world. Illustrations, maybe a really heartwarming story from the pastor's personal life that week. And even the best of our churches, when we try to be faithful to the Word, we seem to have such a light and breezy tone when we talk about God. God seems almost an afterthought in our sermons. In so many churches, we, the members of the church, become the focal point of the sermon. The text is preached as if God's Word is a, a psychotherapy manual or a self-help guide or a book of motivational quotes, but that's not what this book is about at all, friends. This book is about God. God is not an afterthought in this book. He is the star of the show. He's the God of the universe. He's the inexhaustible God, the eternal God, the gracious, kind, and patient God. He's the transcendent yet imminent God, the immutable God, the God of love and the God of wrath. He is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He is a God who is holy, holy, holy. His name deserves honor, and His name must be feared in our pulpits and in our churches. God is not an afterthought. And the great sin of so many thousands of preachers, the great sins that are taking place in churches even this morning, is that God is treated lightly by the men who are supposed to be making God weighty to us as God's people. In verse 10, God says, will not one of you priests stand up and do something about this? Won't you say something about this? Won't you take a stand for my namesake? I wonder if God feels the same way about so many churches today. I wonder if God wishes that somebody would just stand up and shut the door and just shut down this worthless worship. It's better to shut the doors of a church than perpetuate worthless worship, says James Baldwin. Some of the blame is on us. One of the reasons why pastors don't give us a weighty God is because we are not a weighty people. We are a light people. The word in Spanish I love, it has a kind of unique flair to it. It's ligera. It's, we're just light. We're just breezy. We, just, we don't want all that. One of the reasons why pastors don't preach sermons about a weighty God is because if they do, they might lose their job. People will stop showing up on Sunday mornings. Hey man, we've had a hard week. We want to be entertained. We're entertaining ourselves to death. I 
we wrongly associate weightiness and seriousness with a lack of joy when in fact nothing could be further from the truth. A visitor from our church, I took him out to eat one day after attending the service. And uh, he was very kind. You know, I like the church. Very contemplative vibe. Pretty heavy, though. And he said, you know what, though? Not a lot of joy. And I asked him if he thought it was possible to be serious and joyful at the same time. To be weighty and joyful at the same time. I know that this, this guy, I know that he's a Christian. He's a brother, and he loves the Lord very much. I wonder if it was at all lost on him that this book doesn't have a lot of levity. This is not a light book. It's, 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 there's no humor in here, you know? Which is kind of hard for me, because if you know me, I mean, all I do is I'm like Captain Sarcastic. Sometimes I wish Jesus would have busted out a dad joke every now and then. But there's just not, there's not a lot of that in this book. But this book is a book of joy. This book is meant to lead you to eternal joy, and yet it is, a, it is eternally serious. Practically, when I think about the implications of this, I wonder if we as elders often go about shepherding sheep the wrong way trying to spend more time saying, hey, don't do that and do do this, trying to get people to adjust the offerings of their lives that they give to the Lord. I wonder if we should just spend more time giving people a bigger vision of God. Kind of let that correct from the foundation up. As parents, I think about that. How much time we spend with our kids saying, don't do this, do do that. This is how to be a good Christian. But maybe we should just spend more time giving our kids a bigger vision of who God is. In simple ways, just by the way that we talk about God in our homes. Parents, you should know that the way that you talk about God in your homes will do far more good for your children's life and holiness than the rules that you make for them. No matter how wise they may be. So back to the question, who is God to you? If you really want to adjust your vision of who God is, brothers and sisters, you need to look at God. If you're having a problem honoring Him and fearing Him, you just need to spend more time looking at Him and seeing Him for who He really is, studying Him. And God has told you the way to do that. He said the most clear and obvious way to see who He is is to look at His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And if you want to look at Jesus, you have to look in His Word. You cannot look at a Jesus that you have invented in your own mind, a Jesus of your own understanding. You can't look at a Jesus that is the political revolutionary of the market, Marxist, or the flower-picking hippie of John Lennon or the NRA card-carrying Republican, or the God-hates-gays sign-carrying protester of Westboro Baptist, or the God-loves-abortion t-shirt-wearing Democrat. All of us, whether left or right, or black or white, or rich or poor, male or female, we all like to create an image of Jesus that looks more like us than the Jesus that we see in the Bible. Jesus is the son of David. 
Jesus is the second Adam, the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is the morning star, the true vine, the true Israel, the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Lion of Judah, the Alpha and the Omega, the great I Am. He is the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the door to salvation, the bread of life, the living water, the great shepherd. He is the prophet who gives us God's word, and he is God's word himself. He is the high priest of God who offered up the final sacrifice to God. He is the anointed warrior king of the kingdom of God. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than Moses. He's greater than the sacrificial system. He's greater than every shadowy promise of the Old Testament. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the beloved son of the Father. He is the spotless lamb who was slain, and he is now risen as our Savior. He is the bridegroom of the church. He is the chief cornerstone of the new temple. He sits on a war horse with a tattoo on his thigh. He sits at the right hand of the Father with a golden scepter as he rules the nations. He is the judge of the universe, and his robe is covered in the blood of all of the enemies of God. And one day, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He is our hope, our peace, our comfort, our joy, our redeemer, our rock. He is our liberator. He has become to us wisdom, holiness, righteousness, and redemption. He has freed us from condemnation and given us a life-giving spirit. He has prepared for us a room in his father's mansion, and he is going to take us home. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, he is the radiance of the glory of God. If you're, having a trouble seeing, if you're having trouble seeing God and honoring God and fearing God, look at Jesus and let your vision be adjusted. Isn't he worthy? Isn't he? Isn't he worthy of more than what we give him? Have you ever stopped and wondered about the way that you treat people differently when you honor and fear them? The deference that you give them? No, no, no. Please, you go first. That sort of thing, right? People that we honor and fear, we give them our best. We give them our first. We make time for them, even if we don't have time. It's okay, I'll sacrifice some sleep. We refer to them with titles of honor, our Posture changes when we're around someone that we fear and respect. We even dress a certain way. We don't dress the same for certain people. A distinguished guest gets the good towels, the nice cutlery. We offer them the bed and we take the floor or the couch. We get up early or stay up late for their sake. We delight to offer people that we honor and fear. We delight to offer them our very best. It's an honor. And this delight in sacrifice, this is at the heart of true worship. Look at verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is. What a weariness. And you snort at it. Here you see that the priests, they view this work, this worship that the Lord has called them to as a burden. 
But when we honor someone, it doesn't feel like a burden. It feels like a joy. Joy in service is the hallmark of honor. Think about a young couple in love. There's nothing that that young man is not willing to do for that young woman. No matter how far he has to travel, no matter how much money he has to spend, no matter how little sleep he gets, it doesn't matter. You say, hey, that must be tough. He's like, nah, man, it's worth it. The Lord is glorified in us when we delight to sacrifice for him. But on the other hand, the Lord could not be any clearer. He takes no pleasure in us when we take no pleasure in him. Verse 10 says that God takes no pleasure in the priests. Look there again. Oh, that there are one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord. It says that he won't accept their sacrifices, their offerings. Do you know what, do you know what to call a person in whom God takes no pleasure? There's a word for it. The word is cursed. And God says that anyone who does not fear and honor his name and live accordingly is cursed. The reason why everyone is cursed is because their sins are not atoned for. That's what you call a person who's still under sin. Excuse me, a person who's still in sin. They're, they're under the curse of God because they're under the wrath of God. And that's why it's so significant that Jesus came to die for us. He came to redeem us from the curse, to rescue us from the curse. Galatians 3 says, He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. You and I, because of the way that we think so little of God, because of the way that we fail to honor God and love God and fear God, we are under the curse of God. But then God sends His only Son, <coughs> who loves Him, and honors him and fears him and who doesn't deserve the curse at all and he dies in our place. And now all of the good things that Jesus felt about God and did in obedience to God, all of that is counted to us. And this is at the very heart of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, do you think that God is okay with you? Do you think that you're okay with God? If you do, if you think that you know that you don't believe in Jesus, you know that you haven't trusted in Him, what would make you think that you're okay with God? Is it just a hunch? An intuition? Just kind of like, I know it'll all work out, that sort of thing. Well, what if God has already told you that it's not okay? That things are not going to work out? What if God is telling you that as long as you don't love him truly from your heart and live like it, you're under his curse? If you're here this morning and you think that you're a Christian, I bet you if I, raise, if I, if I did the you know, embarrassing small church thing and I said, hey, everybody in this room, raise your hand if you think you're a Christian, you know, probably everybody in this room would raise their hand. So this is for you. If you think that you're a Christian, and you think that your heart is full of love for God and fear of God, I want to call on you to examine your life. 
Examine your worship. Be brutally honest and ask yourself if the way that you're spending your life reflects the fact that you really do honor God and that you really do fear Him, or if it reflects the fact that perhaps you despise His name. In closing, brothers and sisters, I want us to focus on the fact that God will be worshipped. His name will be glorified. He will be feared. That's what verse 11 says. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered up to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 14, he says, For I am a great king, and my name will be feared among the nations. The Lord is saying that whether this worship comes from Jerusalem or Timbuktu, it doesn't matter. His name will be praised. The worship of God and the glorification of His name is the supreme reason for which God created the universe. Everything that God has ever done, including the creation of you and me, He did it for the glorification of His name. You can choose to participate in this glorification as a joyful servant. But one day, if you don't submit to Him now and love Him now, you will still glorify His name, but just in a very different way, in a much more terrible way, as a conquered enemy. God's name will be praised no matter what. Jesus speaks of the same theme as He's going into the triumphal entry. He's heading into Jerusalem. The the great warrior king, the salvation has come to Jerusalem. (coughs) Everyone is praising Jesus. His disciples are praising Him. And the Pharisees see that and they go, whoa, wait a minute, Jesus, tell your disciples to stop this nonsense, this madness. And Jesus goes, if they don't praise me, the rocks will cry out and praise me. Same thing. His name will be praised. From the rising of its sun to its setting, that means always and forever. Every place. The question, where will his name not be praised? There doesn't exist a place. When will his name not be praised? That time doesn't exist. I know we're at the end of a long sermon, so if you've tuned out, let me invite you back in. Because I'm about to tell you something that, like, your college professor won't tell you in the philosophy department. I'm about to tell you the reason why God made you. I'm about to give you the reason for your existence. God made you for the glorification of His name. And if you are a Christian, God has put you here on this earth to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to all nations, so that His name will be praised, honored, and feared among all the tribes, all the tongues, all the peoples, and all the nations of the earth. There's different ways that you do that. Pray for missionaries, give to the church which supports missionaries, go to the mission field yourself, whatever the case may be, evangelizing your neighbor. But that is the purpose for which you were created. So will you offer up your life for this great end? Or will you waste it on what is worthless? Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would continue to convict us. But we pray that the conviction would not be the end. We pray that we would be moved to action 
in every area of our lives. We are so desperately hopeless without your Holy Spirit, Lord. Help us to be faithful children and servants. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray with hearts full of honor and fear. Amen.